0: in Acts chapter 21, 17 through 36, Acts 21, the last half of that chapter, basically. And I need to give you some historical and cultural context here. And this is fascinating. So I hope this is interesting to you as well. It'll definitely set us up for the passage. Uh, But Paul probably was entering into Jerusalem in A.D. 56 or 57. So we're talking about probably twenty three to 24 years after Christ's crucifixion, resurrection. He's been out on these missionary journeys for probably eight years at this point, seven or eight years. And he's coming back to Jerusalem again in the spring because it's Pentecost. So it's uh, about, well, it's seven weeks after Passover. And he's coming into Jerusalem in the spring of A.D. 57. Now, you have to understand something about Jerusalem in A.D. 57. And if you know anything about the history of uh, uh, Jerusalem... AD 57 was a tumultuous time. There was a lot of political turmoil. There was a lot of tension with Rome, because again, Rome was in power over this area for even hundreds of years past this. But basically, this, this political turmoil, there was a growing uh, Jewish nationalism that was being provoked by really uh, heinous Roman rulers that had been appointed, like Felix and these people that were, were really brutal to the Jewish people, and so there's this real growing sense of of tension that eventually would erupt in what we know as the Jewish Wars or the Jewish Revolt of AD sixty six through seventy, and of course that culminates with Titus taking three Roman legions into Jerusalem, laying siege to the city, and destroying the entire city and Masada, you know the the, the where all the people died. Uh, there's a lot. That happens as a result of the tensions that are bubbling up right now in the context of our passage today. So, uh, needless to say, Jews in Jerusalem were very skeptical of Gentiles. All right? They were not big fans of Gentiles at this particular time in history, okay? So for years, what had Paul been doing? Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the, the of the tribe of Benjamin, what had he been doing since coming to faith in Christ on the road to Damascus? He'd been traveling around the whole Roman world debating with synagogue officials about how to understand the Hebrew Scriptures in light of the anticipation of a coming Messiah, this righteous one. Uh, He had been debating with these different officials. He had been leading Gentiles to put their faith in the Jewish Messiah from the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he was encouraging Jewish followers of Jesus to leave the synagogues that were hostile to them for their newfound faith in Christ... And unite with Gentiles in these things called local churches, these local bodies of believers that were neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christian. Uh, And so this is what Paul's been doing for these last eight years. And, uh, And then he sends letters to these churches to explain to them, in light of their newfound faith in Christ, that there is no longer a distinction between all these different demographic ethnic linguistic socioeconomic markers that the culture had held to so firmly for so long and basically he says we are we are united together in christ we're members of one another in the body of christ so this dividing wall that set apart jew from gentile from the time of of well, from the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but eventually with the law of Moses and some of the regulations and things that were put in place when God brought his people Israel into the land, those distinctions, that wall of division was now torn down. Of course, we see that in Paul's letters. It doesn't mean that Jews were no longer Jews and Gentiles are no longer Gentiles, but it means that they were all caught up in this new humanity in Christ, this new, new well, new humanity. And so he sends these letters to these churches explaining this division between Jew and Gentile had been removed in Christ. And on on the other hand, Peter and the apostles, remember, they had stayed in Jerusalem. And things got pretty spicy in Jerusalem. And eventually, uh, what we see in today's passage is that Peter and all the other apostles are not there. James and the elders have stayed in Jerusalem, but all the apostles have fled, perhaps because of persecution. We already saw that happening They had already uh, put to death some of the apostles at this point. And so they had left, and now here James and the other elders are in the city trying their best to hold together a Jewish megachurch in Jerusalem full of former Jewish priests. Hundreds, maybe thousands of, of these new believers were people who had come from the priesthood and obviously cared a great deal about Jewish customs and the law of Moses. And so here, James and these elders are trying to hold together this megachurch and also continue their work of evangelism with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Judea who had not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So there's a lot on their plate. And so it's no wonder that Paul's going to face accusations from both inside and outside the church when he arrives in Jerusalem with seven Gentiles from these primarily Gentile churches around the Aegean Sea uh, on the tail end of his third missionary journey, where he had just written all these things in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Romans about all of what we just talked about. And, you know, I I think this is an important historical-cultural context to take into consideration because we, too, live in a period that is characterized by political unrest and growing tensions between different segments of society. I don't have to convince you of that. You just have to flip on the news, all right, or just have conversations with people out there in the community to know that there's a lot of political turmoil and growing divisions between different people, different groups of people. So it's no wonder that we, too, will face accusations as Christians, as Christ followers. And this is going to come from non-Christians who stand against the gospel. This is going to come from people that that think that uh, our understanding of Christ and the work of Christ and the truth of Scripture, uh, well, they just stand opposed to it. To speak of the exclusivity of Christ or to speak of, of, of how we interpret certain things in Scripture, traditional understandings, biblical worldview, point of view, people are just going to have a problem with that. And that's, so we know that, that we're going to get accusations from non-Christians, but also from professing Christians who struggle with the consequences of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to our deeply ingrained social and political identities. Because what we fail to see sometimes is that we've all been enculturated in different ways into into seeing ourselves in different ways, seeing ourselves politically, seeing ourselves you know, in terms of what recreations we enjoy. We have all these, these identifying markers, and what happens is the gospel comes into our life as Christians and it starts saying your primary allegiance is to Christ. And all of a sudden, all those political and social and socioeconomic and whatever else markers, cultural identifiers, fall by the wayside in light of our allegiance to Christ as, as our primary identity, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so when that happens, it shakes us up a little bit and we start to get uncomfortable. And so accusations happen, conflicts occur, even in the church. So our temptation is that we, and and I I struggle with insecurity as I know y'all do as well. And so what happens when you're insecure and people come at you with accusations or critique or criticism? How do we tend to respond in our flesh? We tend to respond with frustration, anger, maybe fear, A fear that we're going to lose some sort of status or standing or whatever. Uh, But fear, anger. But when we respond to accusations, whether from inside or outside the church like that, what does that do? All it does is exacerbate the growing tensions between us and other people, both Christians and non-Christians. So we can't do that. We can't respond in the flesh. Instead, we must consider how we can strive for unity in the church. Listen to me on this, because this is hard striving for unity in the church by making accommodations for other Christians without compromising the truth of the gospel. That is not an easy task. Making accommodations for others, selflessly sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others and for the sake of unity in the church without watering down or compromising the gospel and we also must come to terms with the fact that we will be treated unjustly for our beliefs by those who are simply opposed to the gospel. I'm not you know, saying that we're intensely persecuted in our country as Christians like you would see in North Korea or uh, Iran or any other place that's very difficult to be a Christian. But I am saying this, if you hold to orthodox Christian beliefs about the person and work of Jesus Christ, among other things that Scripture teaches us, you're not going to be a popular person in some circles. We're going to talk about that today. So today's passage teaches us how to live like this with people both inside and outside the church. And the big idea for today is that Christ followers will face accusations, so we must be prepared for that. So Christ followers will sometimes face internal accusations from other Christians. That's the first part of our passage. In verses 17 to 22, we see how Paul deals with these internal accusations that he faces. So in 17 to 22, Paul is presented, that's actually 17 to to 26, but in, in the first part of that, 17 to 22, Paul is presented with a perceived problem concerning his ministry and teaching. A perceived problem. So he and his companions, it says, are gladly received by their fellow Christians in Jerusalem. And then they go before James and the other Jerusalem elders to review this ministry to the Gentiles. And the leaders respond how? Right there in the text. By glorifying God. Now, like that's great that God's saving these, these Gentiles out there, right? In these churches over there. But then they surface a perceived problem with Paul's ministry. And again, think about the historical and cultural context of what's going on in Jerusalem right now. It seems that some of the Jewish members of the church who were, it says in the text, zealous for the law, had heard that Paul was discouraging Jewish practices among the churches he was planting. And specifically, that Paul was being accused of teaching Jewish Christians. They weren't so much concerned about the Gentiles that had come to faith in Christ but these jewish christians in ephesus and corinth and rome and philippi that paul was teaching them to set aside the law of moses and to set aside the practice of circumcision of male children on the eighth day after birth and to set aside various other jewish customs and traditions and so and these are believers these are professing christians in the church there so there is a kernel of truth to this all right paul taught that we are saved by God's grace through faith in the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And therefore, Paul over and over again teaches, and this is the gospel, right? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So as a result of that good news, Paul teaches that the works of the law cannot save us. And some people had slipped into this, this um Understanding of the law of Moses as though it's the mechanism by which we prove our righteousness to God. It's the mechanism that makes us righteous, that saves us, that puts us right with God through obedience to the rules and regulations of the law. That was never the intent of the law. You go back and read the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. That's not the point. All throughout, it's the point that only God is holy, only God is righteous, and that the only way we're ever going to be saved is by God's grace. The law, in effect, it does distinguish uh, uh, Israel from the other nations because Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is the people that are chosen to receive his law and also to produce the Messiah who would bless all the families of the earth. Remember the promise to Abram. It's not just Israel. It's all the families of the earth. The Jewish Messiah, though, is the one who will bring that blessing and the fulfillment of God's promises. And so Paul teaches this, and he's trying to get them, the Jewish Christians in these, in these places, out of this mindset that somehow the law is going to save you, or that being circumcised is like sort of a badge of, of, of salvation, uh, or these various other customs. He's basically trying to put them in context to the gospel, right? So Paul understood uh, that he was free, and he was Jewish, but he understood that he was free to practice or not practice certain Jewish customs, He understood that there was freedom in Christ to do this or not do this, right? Because again, it's not, our salvation is not based on these things. And he preached and taught that Jesus, the Messiah, who was perfectly obedient to the law, had fulfilled the law for us. So Paul will say things like, I am not, well, we're going to read it in a second, but I'm not under the law of Moses, or I, It's not that I'm not under the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ, the anointed one. So Christ has fulfilled the law, and when, I, when I'm united with Christ through faith, I'm covered by his righteousness, his obedience, knowing that I can't do it myself. And so in that sense, the law is fulfilled for anyone in Christ. And Paul's been teaching these things to all these churches. In fact, he had just written about this freedom to the Corinthian church on his previous missionary journey that he's just coming, coming from to Jerusalem. And this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. Now listen to this, because this is the kind of stuff he's teaching. This is why these accusations are showing up against him. He says, For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may gain more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might gain Jews." To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that's regarding the law of Moses, so that I might gain those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, now he's talking about Gentiles, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might gain those who are without the law. To the weak... I became weak, and this might mean weak in faith or or weak in understanding about how these things work. To the weak, I became weak so that I might gain the weak. I have become all things to all people. Listen to his purpose in this. So that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This is the kind of stuff he's teaching, and this is truth in light of the reality of who jesus is and what he's accomplished so this freedom for jewish christians to not practice certain jewish customs is what led to this perceived problem with paul's ministry and teaching because again the easiest thing in the world in a primarily jewish city like jerusalem especially amidst all the rising political turmoil and tension with rome the gentiles the easiest thing would be to go yeah you so-called gentile christians out there you do your thing But really, we're going to treat Christianity as a sect of Judaism here in Judea, here in Jerusalem. And there, again, what does that lead to? Disunity. It drives a wedge between Jewish and Gentile Christians, which which denies the truth and reality of the gospel. That humanity is once again reunited in Christ. All right? So in verses 23 to 26, the church leaders bring up a proposed solution. They've been thinking about this, and they have a solution that they're going to propose. So basically, they ask Paul to complete this very public purification process, this seven-day process of purification, and to pay for the sacrifices for four other Jewish men who would also be ritually purified. Probably took what's called Nazarite vows, which would have been this month-long process but towards the end of that, they would have needed certain sacrifices sacrificed on their behalf, uh, all according to the law, and they wanted Paul to pay for those sacrifices and publicly be ritually cleansed or purified along with them so that all the people in the church could see that Paul is not denigrating his Jewish roots and these Jewish customs. Okay, So in their minds, that would negate these accusations against Paul. So, the church leaders also, it's right here in the text, they say, okay, we want, Paul, we want you to be more Jewish, in a sense. We want you to be more obviously and publicly aligned to your Jewish roots here. But then they reiterate the the stipulations for Gentiles in the church. They say, they look back to Acts chapter 15 to the Jerusalem Council, which instructed Gentile Christians to abstain from sexual immorality and also to abstain from certain foods associated with pagan idolatry. And Paul had already, had already agreed to those stipulations. In fact, he had taken that letter from the Jerusalem Council, and he had taken it around to these primarily Jewish churches and said, hey, this is what the leadership of the church says you guys need to do. Why did they have those rules? Well, sexual morality is the obvious one, but all these pagan practices would have made these Gentiles despicable and defiling in the eyes of these fellow Jewish Christians in these churches around the Aegean Sea, around the Greco-Roman world. So what they're trying to do is, how can we promote unity in these churches that are, that are bringing together Jew and Gentile? Well, Gentiles, you need to be a little less offensive, you know, uh, and, and not practice indulge in these certain things. Meat sacrifice to idols, things that are strangled. These things are very offensive to the Jewish brothers and sisters in those churches. And so he goes around gladly saying, hey, here's the stipulations for you guys to have table fellowship. Jews and Gentiles sharing table fellowship was a mind-blowingly big deal back then. We totally miss that today, right? But for a Jew to sit down at a table with a Gentile and, and, and actually eat a meal and share table fellowship was a big deal. And so they're trying to make it as, as easy, they're trying to facilitate that through these rules and stipulations for Gentiles, okay? They're promoting unity in the church. And so Paul had agreed to this. He had been teaching the Gentiles how to do this. When you get to 1 Corinthians and Romans, and he's like, Yeah, you asked about um, sexual immorality. Let me tell you about that. 1 Corinthians 7. And he goes, You know those things you asked about with like uh, eating meat, you know, in the marketplace, sacrifice to idols? Well, let me tell you how to do that. So he's helping kind of unpack how to like follow these rules and, and guidelines uh, for these mostly gentile churches all right paul obviously believed that both the gentile guidelines and that jewish purification ceremony were appropriate accommodations that did not violate gospel principles but rather promoted unity in the church if paul thought that doing this paying for these sacrifices and doing this ritual purification process or sending these stipulations out to these Gentile Christians, if he thought that that was denying or rejecting the truth of the gospel, folks, Paul would not have done those things, right? Uh, But he did because as he looked at it, he thought, and it's a cost-benefit. He's like, I don't think we're denying the gospel with these things, but I think these things can promote unity within the church, particularly between Jew and Gentile. And, And so he went along with these things, all right? That's an important factor. So when we face accusations from other Christians, we must consider how we can respond in a way that encourages unity in the church without watering down the gospel. Guys, I'll tell you the easiest way in the world to unify everybody is just get rid of all your beliefs and all your practices and just water everything down and make it so tepid that everyone can deal with it and be okay with it. And that's what, the, that's what secularism teaches us to do, right? But we can't do that, because in watering down all these things, we water down Jesus Christ. We water down the truth of the gospel, and we can't afford that. That's too great a compromise, and yet there are many things, plenty of things that we can do. Uh, in fact, this reminds me of a time when I was first became a Christian and started working at a church up in Fort Worth. I got to teach this series on the book of Acts, actually, uh, to, I don't even know when this was. This is probably like 10 years ago or something, but, uh, so I taught, and we had the, and I was like the youngest guy by like 20 years in our men's Bible study, okay, and so they all like to, you know, pick on me, I was like in my early 20s, and uh, so I remember teaching this one lesson, and afterwards this, this uh, guy who was one of the founders of the church, I mean, he's an older guy, very traditional, uh, very um, stern. I liked him, but just kind of kind of intimidated me. And he came up after I taught this lesson. He goes, hey, I'd like to grab coffee with you, young man. And I was like, awesome. This is cool. I've got this older Christian man who wants to pour into me. So we go to this coffee shop, and, and he buys me a cup of coffee. And immediately, he's like, brings up a perceived problem with my teaching. And I was like, oh. You know, I was hoping to be encouraged today. Um, but anyway, it, it was good. He was very direct, though. And basically, I... He accused me of being flippant with the word of the Lord. Flippant meaning I wasn't taking it seriously enough. Uh, because in this one particular, it was at the beginning of Acts, I think, but where Jesus is talking to his disciples, I had paraphrased the words of Jesus, and instead of saying disciples, I had said dudes. So I had kind of put myself in Jesus' shoes to go, dudes, what's up, you know, what's the matter with you, or something like that. But it just, it just struck this man as, as being flippant with the word of the Lord. And, you know, I didn't know any better, and and again, I was insecure. I mean, I was, this is my first time to ever teach in front of people, and I I really, I wanted to respond in a disrespectful way, you know, and and justify myself before this guy and all this stuff. But by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is working, already at work in my life, I responded with humility. I received his uh, rebuke, his correction, and from that day forward in my teaching, I tried, I was very careful to, to be as reverential as possible with the word of the Lord, and particularly in, in reading the words of Jesus Christ, because I knew it caused an issue with this man, okay? And so this accommodation, from my vantage point, it, it, it promoted unity in our church without violating any gospel principles, so it seemed like the right thing to do. And as followers of Jesus, all of us are going to face accusations. And you might call them critiques or criticisms, but I'll just call them accusations from other Christians, and that's going to be related to how we live this life, how we live out our walk with Christ, Um, and also what we teach or the things we believe or how we interpret Scripture. And, And by God's grace, because humility is something the Holy Spirit has to produce in us, By God's grace, we have to meet these accusations with humility so that we can first and foremost reflect on whether these perceived problems are really problems. Guys, sometimes we do need to be rebuked and corrected. Sometimes I'll get it wrong in how I act or what I say or what I teach, and I need to be corrected, and I need to have the humility to receive that. But sometimes it's not really a problem. It's just something that's maybe getting, getting that's inaccurate or being blown out of proportion. And even if we are ultimately justified in how we're acting, what we're saying, what we're teaching, we must also remember, based on what Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians, that we have the freedom in Christ to be unfree for the sake of unity. Do you know that? You have the freedom in Christ to make yourself a slave to others for the sake of Christ and for the sake of unity in the body of Christ insofar as we aren't compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ or the truth of God's word there have to be those parameters but besides that we're free to make ourselves unfree we're free to deny ourselves and to self-sacrifice for the sake of others and for unity in the church So we can accommodate other Christians for the sake of unity in the church, but how are we to handle accusations arising from outside the church? Are we just supposed to accommodate ourselves, fall all over ourselves to water everything down so that people outside the church uh, uh, will like what we're saying and what we're doing? So let's look at that. This is the second part of our passage. Christ followers will sometimes face external accusations as well. So throughout the book of Acts, time and time again, Paul has faced these these external accusations from his fellow Jews, but also from Gentiles. You remember the silversmith in Ephesus? I mean, constantly people are trying to whip up mobs to take him out and accuse him of all sorts of different things. And you know what? He's in good company because they did that to Jesus. And in fact, they did that to Stephen at the beginning of Acts, and he was the one holding the coats as they stoned Stephen to death. So he, he knows that this happens, and he's faced this time and time again, these accusations. So in verses 27 to 36, we see how these external accusations lead to unjust condemnation and cancellation. External a- accusations leading to unjust condemnation and cancellation. All right. So in verses 27 to 29, the external accusations against Paul, they begin with unjust condemnation and we see a whole lot of emotion and little to no evidence for this condemnation so in verse 28 we see the emphasis on emotion guys this is so important and we see this today in our world of social media and news media and everything else what's the easiest way to motivate people to action reasoning with them no it's to whip up our emotions right It's to get us angry or or afraid or whatever. That's how you can control people. We know that. We're human beings. And so that's the easy thing to do. So that's what people go to is emotion. So look at verse 28. As Paul finishes his purification at the temple, he's rounding out this seven-day process. He's spotted by some Jews from Asia. That's Asia Minor in these days, the province around Ephesus, all right, which he had just come from, by the way. And he had spent uh, three years there uh, just, just a couple years ago. So these, these men, these Jews from Asia Minor, they may have been some of the Jewish men who had already been opposing Paul in Ephesus. Paul talks about this in his letters. He faced a lot of hardship from that synagogue there in Ephesus. Uh, so here we see them whip up an angry mob by loudly accusing Paul of teaching against the Jewish people, the law of Moses, and the temple. And again, this is harkens back to Stephen and and uh, Jesus and Jesus's apostles is is he's being accused of, of teaching against preaching against Judaism, but specifically the Jewish people, the law and the temple. And then they even go one step further to accuse Paul of defiling the temple by bringing an Ephesian Gentile, Trophimus, remember that guy? Uh, He came with Paul, and they had seen him with Paul in Jerusalem, so they just assumed, or maybe it just worked out that they could accuse him of this without any evidence, that he had somehow taken Trophimus, this Gentile, past the wall that separated the Gentile court, the outer court, from the inner Jewish courts. And it's written, archaeologists have found all this, it's written that if a Gentile goes beyond this wall, it's sure death. Basically, you take your life upon your... uh, uh, your shoulders. You take responsibility for your own death, basically, if you bring a Gentile past there. So they accused him of this. And in making these accusations, Paul's enemies weren't concerned with evidence or justice or bringing forth witnesses or some sort of just process. They were simply playing upon the emotions of the crowds, which were already running really high. Emotions were running high. This was not a hard thing to do. And then in verses 30 to 36, these accusations against Paul lead to unjust cancellation Why do I use the word cancellation? Do you ever get sick of hearing that word? It's all over our culture today, right? I use that word because it's so common in our cultural conversations today. Canceling people, cancel culture. But it perfectly describes what happens to Paul in AD 57. This has been going on for a long time, folks. Unjust cancellation. In particular, we see how accusations lead to cancellation in the form of immediate removal and eventually retribution punishment all right so in verse 30 we see how unjust cancellation leads to immediate removal and Luke describes this well look at verse 30 Luke says then the whole city he's using a hyperbole here then the whole city was provoked and the people rushed together and taking hold of Paul they were dragging him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut They canceled him right out of the temple courts, all right, and shut the gates behind him and started beating him, trying to beat him to death. We'll get to that in a second. But in verses 31 and 32, we see how unjust cancellation also seeks eventual retribution. If you're unjustly canceling someone, take it all the way. Don't just kick them out, kill them. That's the mentality here. Just cancel them as much as you can cancel them, all right? So there's retribution, and Luke tells us that the angry crowd, and this is his quote, was intent on killing Paul. you got to remember Paul, though. Who was he? Twenty, what, 24 years before? Saul, the persecutor? He was doing this exact same thing to Stephen and the Christians in Jerusalem. He knows how this goes, and now it was happening to him. And so we see... Um, we see them intent on killing Paul. But but then they, the Romans had this fortress on the northwest corner of the temple so that they, they had two stairways they could run down. If there was ever a riot or something, they wanted to stay close to kind of the center of Jerusalem at the temple complex. So they see this commotion. They hear this commotion. And this Roman commander who's in charge of, I want to say, 2,000 troops, soldiers, comes down with two of his centurions, which is probably like these probably like 200 Roman soldiers, and they storm down there into the temple precinct, and they want to know what's going on. And, and the Roman commander was well aware of this tension that was existing in Jerusalem right now, So he comes down there quickly and he takes Paul into custody. They stop beating Paul. The Roman soldiers grab Paul. They chain him to two Roman soldiers. And then this Roman commander is trying to figure out what's going on and quell this violent outburst. So here we see how the Lord sends an unlikely rescuer to protect his apostle from unjust condemnation and cancellation, stemming from accusations made with little evidence and lots of emotion. I know that's a lot of information there, but think about it. God's not done with Paul yet. He's not going to let him die here at the hands of this angry crowd. So he sends, of all people, a Roman commander to go save Paul. Doesn't mean that Paul doesn't get unjustly imprisoned. uh, And and there's not, it's not like a, a, a perfect picture of justice that ensues. But God was not done with Paul yet. And so he saved his life in this way. But Luke tells us that the commander couldn't even figure out what was happening because stuff was so crazy. Luke writes, But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, the commander ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. That's where we're going to leave Paul today, is in the barracks. So we will sometimes face accusations from non-Christians who are opposed to the gospel and who are quick to condemn and cancel anyone who would follow Christ. Anyone who would take up their cross and follow Christ and live in obedience to God's word. There's just going to be people that take issue with that. Just the other day, maybe you've been tracking. I don't know if you're big on Australian rules football or not, but it's big in Australia. Anyway, there's been a news story. At the beginning of last week, uh, a Christian man had been appointed as the new CEO for the Essendon Football Club there in Melbourne, in Victoria. And... uh, And he seemed like a qualified guy. He ran the largest bank in Australia for a while. Like He had a lot of leadership and management experience. Seemed like a really decent fellow. But he's a Christian, and he went to a local church there. And so uh, he literally was on the job for 24 hours before he got forced out. And the way that force out looked is they said, oh, wait, you're on the board of your church, and your church holds to traditional Christian teaching about the sanctity of human life and marriage? I'm sorry, you have to choose. You can either be on the board of your church or you can be a CEO for a football club, but you can't be both. And he said, I'm going to be the board of my church. And so he literally was the CEO of this football club for one day. And of course, it caused all this this media coverage and everything else. But the idea was uh, that these protesters were accusing him and the church that he was in leadership at of all sorts of really terrible things. I mean, they were, in fact, the leader of the state government in Victoria, in Melbourne, he sends out this message encouraging this guy's ouster, and this is what the the leader of the state government, it's like the governor of Texas here, right? He says, I don't support those views, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry, is just wrong. Those sort of attitudes are simply wrong, and to dress that up as anything other than bigotry is just obviously false. That's what the leader of the state government said. And they called it a controversial church. Literally, the church is just a conservative Anglican church that holds to what churches have held to for 2,000 years, just basic orthodox teachings, a basic biblical worldview on the sanctity of human life and marriage. And that's the response. And this now unemployed Christ follower, he responded in an email, and this is what he said. He said, Today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated Or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed. And then he goes on to say, let me be clear. I love all people and have always promoted and lived an inclusive, diverse, respectful and supportive workplace. And then he he says, I believe my record over a long period of time testifies to this. In other words, if you want evidence as to my character and how I love people and care for people, it's there if you want to look at it. So following Christ might mean facing accusations that trigger unjust condemnation and cancellation fueled by lots of emotion and oftentimes little evidence. That's not to say there's not justifiable accusations made from outside the church uh, against those inside the church. There certainly are, and we need to take those seriously. But oftentimes, they're going to simply be unjust condemnation and cancellation, and a lot of times by motion. And again, they didn't have social media back in 57. You know, we have that today. So in order to follow Christ, we must do what Jesus called count the cost. You remember this in Luke? He said, if you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost on the front end. Kids, I say kids, it's like young men and women, right? Like my kids. you got to understand that following Christ is something that you have to look at and go, this is going to cost me something. So that you're not surprised when it costs you something. And so Jesus says, count the cost. And and so what will we do when our family members accuse us of hateful bigotry? It might happen. Jesus talks about that in that same chapter on count the cost. What will we do when our job, our finances, our freedom, or even our life is at stake because of our faith in Christ and our obedience to him? I think like Paul, we must remember that the Lord promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Whatever we face, folks, he's in it with us. He's right there. That's why the Holy Spirit was telling Paul over and over again on his way to Jerusalem, you're going to be unjustly bound, imprisoned. Uh, You're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Like, Paul got it, and that was to show him that God knew what was going on. God predicted Paul's predicament, and he was still accomplishing his plans and purposes, even through those difficult things. So Paul went to Jerusalem knowing that he would face accusations and injustice But he went there, why? For the sake of his Lord Jesus Christ and so that other people might come to know him and find forgiveness and eternal life by believing in him. So following Christ means facing accusations just like Christ did. And that's why he is so clear about the reality of discipleship in that chapter, Luke 14. And I'll just leave you with his words. He says, whoever does not carry his own or her own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Um, Next week, Paul's going to defend his ministry before the crowds. It's a pretty cool passage. Uh, And in the midst of defending his ministry, he's going to share his personal testimony of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ with all these crowds. And uh, it goes well until he mentions Gentiles. We're going to look at that next week. Okay.